Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, wow, talk about going outside the perimeter. Georgia Tech is headed way OTP. I didn't write that. My producer, Daniel, did. We'll meet the team behind Lunar Flashlight. It's a satellite developed alongside NASA to search for signs of frozen water, I believe, on the moon. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Also, I got here in 1982 and we got off the plane and got out to the airport. Cars abandoned all over the roads. People walking home because we had several inches of snow that most of northern Georgia was not prepared for. At that moment, I made a commitment that that was not going to happen on my watch and there's going to be a better way to do things. You've seen and heard him for many, many years. Chief Meteorologist Glenn Burns retires after 40 years of forecasting Atlanta's weather. Talk about an incredible journey. He joins me a little later in the program. All that's just ahead, but first this. We're down to one day away, tomorrow's U.S. Senate runoff election. And we have several items of note to get to. First, the candidates are in their final hours of campaigning ahead of tomorrow. Now, Republican challenger Herschel Walker is visiting North Georgia on his Evict Warnock bus tour, as he calls it, including stops in Flowery Branch and Dawsonville earlier today. Then he's headed to LJ and Calhoun, all before wrapping up his campaign in Kennesaw. Meanwhile, Democratic incumbent the Reverend Raphael Warnock is making stops throughout Atlanta. He met with Teamsters labor union members earlier today before hosting a rally at Georgia Tech. And then Warnock's final rally will be held tonight at the Wild Heaven Brewery in the West End. Speaking of the election, more than 1.8 million people voted early in Georgia's runoff for the U.S. Senate ahead of tomorrow. And we hear more from Alex Helmick. Georgia's new Republican-authored voting laws cut the runoff period to just four weeks, and that shortened the early voting period. Polls in some counties were open for less than a week. That led to long lines and wait times for those trying to cast a ballot, even breaking a one-day record for early voting in any election for turnout. Nearly a third of all early voters came from the state's four most populous counties in largely Democratic metro Atlanta. Voters 55 and older accounted for more than a million ballots cast so far, with some 200,000 more women than men voting ahead of the December 6th runoff. Alex Helmick, WAB News. Now, also a key voting block, those between the ages of 18 and 29 could play a key role in the runoff election results. Now, back in November, their share of the electorate fell from the last midterm, so organizers are ramping up their efforts to turn out this demographic. Again, those ages 18, between 18 and 29, as we hear from our politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. 
In recent days, the Youth Justice Coalition and others have dispatched 250 student canvassers at six colleges. Like December 9th? 6th? Okay. Tuesday? Okay. I'll go hit it on the 6th. TJ James says he's glad a pair of student canvassers approached him at Georgia State. It's kind of like uh, going into overtime. Why play hard in the game and then go into overtime and slack off? Amani Hardin found it useful too. Our generation doesn't really like talk about voting enough. So when people like come around and be like, oh, are you registered? Oh, are you this? Are you that? It actually does help. Jordan Madden with the Youth Justice Coalition is a Georgia State sophomore. He says it can be challenging to engage students during the four-week runoff. All of us are working. All of us are studying and wrapping up our semesters and getting final. Some people are graduating in December. We had to move very swiftly and effectively. The Warnock campaign says they've hired 100 fellows on 14 campuses for the runoff. The Walker campaign didn't respond to a media request. The 18 to 29 crowd broke heavily for Democrats in November. But Clark Atlanta professor Tammy Greer worries whether campus organizing will be enough to boost turnout. We have to also be clear that the percentage of people who are in and on college campuses is still lower than it is for those that are not on college campuses. At least 16,000 voters under the age of 30 who didn't vote in November have voted in the runoff. And Youth Justice Coalition says early vote pop-up locations on three campuses have surpassed their turnout from November. But right now, the number of voters ages 18 to 29 make up a smaller share of the total statewide turnout than any other age group. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And finally. High snap. They got it down and it's blocked. Georgia stuffs it. And now here comes the run back. If this stands, it's going to be about a 95-yard touchdown. It will stand. Make no mistake, the Georgia Bulldogs, yeah, they are that good. The University of Georgia's football team is a step closer to a national championship game. I'm not going to go ahead and give it to them yet. The Bulldogs won, of course, the SEC Conference Championship on Saturday over LSU, 50, as they say, 50 to 30. And the final college football playoff poll ranked Georgia number one in the country. Now, quarterback Stetson Bennett says their next goal is repeating as national champs. But first, they'll celebrate winning the SEC title. Winning the SEC championship, I mean, there, there's only one of those. I mean, it's a banner, right? I mean, it's it's the same thing as a, as a national championship, just a little bit smaller scale. How cool is Stetson Bennett? He's like 40, isn't he? But he can play. Georgia will play Ohio State. I'm just kidding. He's not 40. He's like 25. Georgia will play Ohio State on New Year's Eve night in the Peach Bowl at Mercedes-Benz Stadium here in Atlanta. The winner of that game will play the winner of Michigan versus TCU for the national title. Sorry, Bama fans. Y'all didn't deserve to be in there anyway. Send me your emails. Now, I told y'all my prediction some weeks ago. Georgia and Michigan for the national title. Closer Look continues after this. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
Agriculture Look continues from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Did you know NASA's been studying ice on the moon for years? Y'all didn't know that because we just found out, too. And now NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California have partnered with researchers and engineers at Georgia Tech to take their research to an even higher level, which would be the moon, and enter lunar flashlight built and designed by Georgia Tech researchers and staff. It's headed to the moon very soon. So join me now to talk more about this because they are very, very, they're much smarter than I am about this whole lunar flashlight and its upcoming mission. We have Dr. Glenn Leitzie, a professor in the Guggenheim School of Aerospace Engineering and co-principal investigator for the Lunar Flashlight Project. And also from Georgia Tech, student researchers Mason Starr, Lunar Flashlight's Mission Operations Lead, and Michael Haig, Lunar Flashlight's Lead Operations Systems Engineer. Woo, y'all know what y'all doing. Welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. All right. Well, let, let me start with you, Dr. Lightsey. And I'm ho- is it Lightsey or Lightsey? Let us know because we want to make Lightsey, sure we can. Yeah. Lightsey. Got it. So let's start here because I've got a lot of questions, but I love this, this quote from way back in January of this year. Quote, when thirsty residents of a permanent community on the moon take a swig of fresh water brought in from the lunar South Pole, they'll be enjoying the benefits of a 30 pound spacecraft known as the lunar flashlight that was assembled and tested at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Close quote. Now, when you have this conversation at Thanksgiving dinner, what did you tell folks when they asked you, what you doing over there? <laughs> Is this what you told them about the thirsty <laughs> residents? Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, we're we're working on the mission uh, that is looking to map this uh, the southern polar region of the moon for uh, ice on the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a NASA mission. It's it's there are institutions from all over the country. Uh, participating, but uh, Georgia Tech has had several roles in this mission. We have built the propulsion system for it. We integrated the spacecraft at GTRI, and uh, we are also doing the mission operations. So we'll be commanding the spacecraft from the Georgia Tech campus. Okay, so let's back up for a lot of folks who have a lot of interest in this, and we're all very proud and happy for Georgia Tech. I want to come back a little bit and talk about how you all even got involved in this, and how long has this been in the works? Well, the mission itself is has been going since about 2014. Uh, Georgia Tech started at in 2019. Uh, uh, NASA asked us if we would help build the propulsion system mm-hmm. for this satellite that puts it into a lunar orbit, uh, and um, that it, it required some advanced technology that we were working on. And so we we worked with NASA. We worked with Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Mm-hmm and developed an advanced propulsion system that fits on a small spacecraft. And then as a result of that work, uh, they asked us if we would do the space, what's called the spacecraft integration and testing, which is all the pieces of the spacecraft come to one place and you put it all together. And so we did that at Georgia Tech Research Institute here on campus as part of Georgia Tech. And, um, and then you know, lastly, they asked us if we would do the mission operations, which required us to build a new mission operations center. This is kind of like mission control mm-hmm. at in Houston or JPL on a smaller scale. And our students uh, are actually operating the spacecraft. They'll be sending commands and getting data from the spacecraft 
while it is at the moon. And I want to bring in the students. I want to bring in Mason and Michael. And I want to understand, too, and correct me if I'm wrong, because understand this, there are a lot of things I feel confident talking about, like sports and hip-hop and jazz and cats. This is not one of them. So if I ask a, a stupid question, please forgive me. I want to make sure I understand this. So in addition to building Lunar Flashlight, you had to also build the operation center to control it, navigate it, and all that, correct? Am I, am I on the right path or am I way off? Uh, that's correct. This is Mason speaking. I'm oh, thank you, Mason. You make me feel so lead. smart. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. So we, uh, I, Michael and I came on the project a little over a year ago, the start of the last school year, and uh, we moved into an attic in, the, uh, in our building at Georgia Tech. And over the past uh, year, we've been converting that attic into an operations center. So we got all of our computers stood up there. We've set up the lunar flashlight test bed which is basically a copy of the spacecraft with all of its guts spilled out all over a table. We can use it for testing. We connected the operations center to NASA's deep space network, which is what we use to communicate with the satellite once it's in space. There's been a lot of work over the past year to get everything all set up. So you're in, in an attic. <laughs> That's correct, a converted attic. That's now our uh, operations center. Wow, Mike, I want to bring you into the conversation. When you all got the word that you were going to be working on this, I mean, and for and again, you know, for listeners who may not understand this, you, you're basically coming up with the design. Did you have a template for this, or did you have to come up with the design and all of this, correct? Yeah, essentially. There are a lot of guidelines, a lot of best practices for how to, how to operate a spacecraft, but most of that is – uh, about how to operate a spacecraft that's just orbiting the Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of universities uh, have these small satellites that they that they launch and they talk to uh, that are just in low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred miles uh, from the Earth's surface. But getting this thing set up to talk to a spacecraft that's going to be a lot farther away, mm -hmm. uh, we were very much on our own. Obviously, we had great mentorship from uh, the, the folks at JPL, but uh, there were a lot of decisions that we got to, we got to make ourselves, you know, how many people do we want, mm -hmm. uh, you know, staffing consoles at any one time? What do we want their jobs to be? What do we want their displays to look like? All this stuff uh, we could decide ourselves. And Dr. Leitze, when you're working with students, and, and this sounds like just an incredible project, when you're working with the students, and I know you're guiding them, but how much are you really wanting them to take the lead on this? Yeah, that's right. We, you know, the students are, are great. We are, we're always kind of giving them challenges. And, uh, you know, one of the trends that we've seen in the, in the space industry is that we're able to do more and more of a space mission at, at a facility like a university. It, it used to be that you had to be at government labs mm -hmm. or at a really big company to do this kind of work. And it's really been a, a great part of the educational process to bring the missions into the university and let the students actually do the missions. And so, you know, as the students will tell you, like, uh, you know, I'm running around all the time and and really it's up to them i mean they're empowered to to make these decisions and and you know they're they're essentially working at the level of professional engineers and how big is actually how big is the lunar flashlight i'm curious yeah so lunar flashlight is it's what we call a cubesat these are these are miniaturized satellites a lot of people think a satellite has to be really big mm -hmm. 
Um, there has been a lot of effort going into making satellites smaller over the last 20 years, and, and this is about a, the size of a briefcase. Uh, so it's not a very big physical you know, structure, but it has sort of a lot of instrumentation packed into a small volume, kind of like your cell phone would. Mm -hmm. And so we're packing all this capability into this small spacecraft and shooting it to the moon. And uh, Michael and Mason, I actually have a question here from a 12-year-old who, not community school, uh, but they want to know, what's it made of? Michael? Uh, so, so, so a small satellite like this is, uh, the structure of it's going to always be aluminum because uh, it's light and strong. Uh, it's used in a lot of areas space applications but of course it's got all of its electronics mm -hmm. which are uh made of made made of, made of silicon and and fiberglass and things like that its solar panels uh are going to have all sorts of uh, fun and exotic materials on them uh to, to make them do what they have to do uh but but uh and 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 as for, for for when it comes to its batteries mm -hmm. its batteries are the same kind of batteries you can buy at, at a hardware store not like double a's mm -hmm. but uh just just battery cells that, that you could get get at ace hardware uh so so yeah so i would say mostly aluminum <laughs> and i have another question here mason i'll let you answer this how exactly again will this be used on the moon and looking for frozen water yeah so we'll be entering a very special orbit around the moon called a near rectilinear halo orbit that allows us to shoot really close to the south pole of the moon. We're talking only 10 to 15 kilometers off the surface, which is extremely close. Um, when we pass over the south pole of the moon, we'll point in our instrument towards the craters. Uh, and this instrument is a laser array that has four near-infrared lasers. We shoot the lasers down into the craters and look at the light that is reflected back. And by measuring how much light is reflected back, we can determine how much surface ice is present on the surface of the moon inside of those craters. Those craters haven't seen sunlight in millions and millions of years. They're a single digit Kelvin in terms of temperature that's very, very cold, almost near absolute zero. So by looking at the light that comes back, we can see how much water ice is there. Now, let me ask you all this. Is there, do you have to simulate this down here? When I say down here, I feel like I want to, down here over at Georgia Tech. How, how can you determine whether that's going to work? Do you have to simulate the environment up there down here for like a test run? Yeah. So we have on the ground a, uh, something called the Lunar Flashlight Test Bed, which is kind of like a copy of the spacecraft. Um, but it doesn't look like a spacecraft. It's just all the electronics spread out over a table. And we use this for testing. We can set up simulations. Um, we can basically trick it into thinking that it's in space flying around the moon and use it, uh, use the test bed to test out our operational procedures, uh, model what the spacecraft is going to do in various situations and use it to train our operations personnel to make sure that we all know what we're doing and that we're not just doing things for the first time once the spacecraft is up in space. Uh, we also had quite a bit of time with the spacecraft on the ground before it got shipped off to NASA mm -hmm. um, to, to do what we call day in the life testing. And I can pass that over to Michael. He was in charge of day in the life yeah, testing. Yeah, Michael, take that from here. Yeah, so when it comes to 
testing a spacecraft on the ground, you want to do, and you want to run it through its paces. You want to make sure that you've tested out everything you're going to ask it to do in space in the much more you know, benign and uh, safe environment on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, so you do what's called day in the life testing, where you get together all these scenarios that the spacecraft is going to face once it's up in space uh, and you and, and, and you get together everything that you're going to do with it. And then you uh, set it up as, as best as you can. Obviously, I can't do all of the same things mm -hmm. it's going to do in space. You don't want it shooting off lasers in the middle of your lab, generally. N no, uh, no, I would think not. But, uh, but, but the other thing you do, you want to make sure it can survive the environment of space. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so What is can, the temperature? Suggest... Michael, let me stop you right there. What is the temperature on the moon? Do we know? It, it really it really depends on whether you're in sun or in shadow. If you're in sunlight on the moon, uh, it can get pretty hot. It can get uh, like de definitely to above uh, room temperature. If you're in the dark, if you're on the you know in darkness, if you're not getting hit by direct sunlight, uh, because there's no atmosphere, it instantly gets really really cold. Mm -hmm. Like Mason was saying, down to near absolute zero. Dr. Lights, let me ask you this, because this is a question I think a lot of people are listening, saying, why is NASA so concerned with looking for this, this water, frozen water on the moon, and what benefit does it have for us, us folk down here? Yeah, so, well, first of all, um, going to the moon is something, you know, it's just a really fundamental exploration objective. Uh, you know, it's something humans do because humans are explorers. It's, it's wired into our DNA. Uh, we want to know, you know, what is where, what is going on at these other places, and I think that gives us perspective mm -hmm. on our life on Earth. Um, water is, is, you know, very important for human life, but also a lot of chemical processes that, you know, making rocket fuel. There's, if you're going to go to the moon, you're going to use this process called in situ resource utilization, which means using the resources that are on the moon as opposed to taking everything with you. It's very expensive from an energy point of view to bring things from Earth to the moon. So if it's already there, then you don't have to use, you know you don't have to take it with you. And water is something that is very heavy. Mm -hmm. So um, if it if it exists and we can we can kind of mine it like a resource, then then why wouldn't we take advantage of that? So so we're really interested from a, a human exploration point of view. We're also really interested from a science point of mm -hmm. view. Like how did that water get there? So. Um, so there's a lot of interesting questions. And now let's back up also, too, because we thought this launch was going to happen uh, not a while, well, a few, about a week ago. What happened? And it's been delayed. And when will we launch this? We, like I'm part of the team. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, we, we've been planning for launch. You know, we're not on uh, the Artemis One mission that you may have heard of. That mission is already in space. Uh, we were on a separate commercial rocket. It's it's a you know Falcon Nine SpaceX mm -hmm. rocket. Um, it has been delayed a couple of times. You know these rockets are reused. This one has been reused a few times, and uh, you know they may have had some technical issue with the launch during mm -hmm. the countdown. Uh, we've been told it's going to launch later this week on Thursday. So we're basically standing by mm -hmm. to be like doing full time operations around the clock and having all these critical events. And so the students are kind of just waiting for that moment when the launch occurs. How many students total are involved in this project and faculty? 
Well, if you look at total, I mean, I would say, it, it, you know, including students that have graduated, it's probably like 40 or so. Um, and several faculty, uh, you know, currently we have about 14 that are our full-time mission operators. These are the people that will staff our operations center. Mm-hmm. And also I have a question from a listener that is asking, are there many other spacecraft satellites orbiting the moon? Michael or I don't know, Mason or Michael, you want to take that? Yeah, I can take that. Uh, so there are not nearly as many spacecraft orbiting the moon as there are orbiting the Earth. There mm-hmm. are there are currently several thousand spacecraft orbiting the Earth and maybe a dozen orbiting the moon. Uh, that number went up a lot uh, when we had the Artemis launch uh, a couple weeks ago, but uh, it's it's definitely going to be more lonely out there. <laughs> and I have a follow-up question from my 12-year-old friend who wants to know, ask Michael and Mason what classes are they taking in order to get to do this? <laughs> yeah, I can, I can take Sounds that. Sounds like a future um, Georgia Tech student, I think, too. Yeah, I would I would recommend for anybody that wants to get involved uh, in the space field to really study up on their math and science. Physics is very useful. Um, if you have access to engineering classes, those are very helpful as well. Um, there's a lot of extracurriculars that uh, can lead you towards working in a field like this, mm-hmm. like uh, any ro- like a robotics team, um, computer science, any anything like that um, with computers or engineering will be really helpful for you. Michael, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would add that people think, you know, oh, aerospace, it's it's rocket science, it's super specialized. Mm-hmm. But there are people who work on this stuff with all sorts of backgrounds within, within STEM. You know, you need people who are really good at, you know, pure math to think about, you know, what, what is the orbit going to look like? Mm-hmm. You need people who are great at programming. You need people who know about mechanical engineering, about electrical engineering. Uh, it's not nearly so niche and specialized as people might think. And Dr. I'll, I'll add on to that. Sorry, I'll add on to that, Michael. Even outside of that, like if you're interested in geology, the field of planetary science, learning about the geology on other planets might be interesting to you. Uh, we need chemists and biologists for all sorts of different chemical and biological experiments that go on in space. So. Um, whatever you're interested in, there's a way to have it happen in space. I think we need to set up where you all go and talk to some students after you launch the lunar flashlight. Uh, Dr. Lightsby, as we begin to wrap up, and I want to focus on this because based on those questions from that 12-year-old and you heard what Michael and Mason had to say and given some great advice there. And I remember just it wasn't long ago when folks were talking about, oh, we should do away with NASA. I mean, can you believe that was actual conversation out there? When you hear that young folks are taking interest and then what these two gentlemen are being able to do at Georgia Tech, what does it say to you about the future of space exploration and and NASA and and future scientists and and astronauts and anybody involved in this space here? No pun intended. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I I lecture to students a lot about, you know, the future of space. And I, I really believe, you know, the golden years are ahead of us. They're not behind us. You know, a lot of people think of the Apollo program as though that was the, t- the you know, the generation that, but that was really just the beginning. Um, what, you know, the next 50 years are going to be incredibly exciting because we're going to have people basically living in space full time for the first time. 
and uh, uh, working in space and, and, you know, the discoveries we will make, the things that we can't even imagine, looking for life on other planets. Um, you know, these are just fundamental uh, questions, exciting things to, to explore. And uh, it's, it's a great time to get, you know, in a lot of respects, it's kind of like the genie's out of the bottle because now we're seeing launches happening faster and faster, we're having companies get involved. There's a lot of private enterprise. So it's it's a great time to be going into the space industry. All right, and well, we look forward to that launch and hopefully it will be happening in maybe maybe sometime this week, if not next week. Great. All right. Dr. Thank you. Dr. Glenn Leitze, professor in the Guggenheim School of Aerospace Engineering and co-principal investigator for the Lunar Flashlight Project. Also, student researchers, Mason Starr, Lunar Flashlight's Mission Operations Lead, Michael Haig, Lunar Flashlight's Lead Operations system, Systems Engineer. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. I'm so glad that you all urged a young person to, to get into this, and that's really a core of what this program is about. So thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thank, Thank you very much. And Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. I believe it was the second week in January of 2014. Wow. Now, it was only one to three inches of snow that fell over parts of the metro area. That wasn't the issue. It was the ice and the gridlock. And meteorologists, they often tell us what's coming, and sometimes we don't listen, and sometimes it is hard to predict. Still, for a little over four decades, Glenn Burns has been doing a pretty good job of telling y'all what was coming with maybe one or two uh-ohs. We'll talk about that in a minute. With a longtime WSB chief meteorologist here in Atlanta, he's retired. And as he signed off a couple of weeks ago, he talked about what it meant to go just beyond forecasting the weather. I've been to hundreds of schools during the past 40 years and have heard from hundreds of school children about weather. And I could see the fear in their eyes and their face when they told me about the storms that affected their house and their neighborhoods. And I always kept that in mind, in my mind's eye. And we were tracking storms, always wanted to convey a sense of urgency to take cover. I never wanted anyone to panic. I could just see the kids' faces, the mothers terrified inside the house, not knowing what was going on. But I just wanted to assure everyone that we were going to be here, we were tracking it for them, and everything was going to be okay. And it's been quite a journey. Joining me now is long time, or as I like to say, seasoned and now (laughs) retired certified chief meteorologist, Glenn Burns. Welcome to the program. What a treat for our WAB listeners and me. Well, it's a treat for me as well. And I have a big announcement. Yeah. One of the main reasons that I got here today was that someone told me it was someone's birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday, Rose. Congratulations. Thank you. It is my birthday. Wow. That is awesome. I was not expecting that. Oh, wow. Listen, I want to begin with uh, the the blizzard of 1993. And and basically, you said, look, this kind of saved my career a little bit. Let's back up. What happened with the blizzard of 93? Well, when I got out of, I started in West Palm Beach, Florida, so I got to be good at tropical meteorology. And at one point in time, there was a guy taking a vacation that was a general manager of the NBC station in Minneapolis that saw me. 
and he asked me if I would love to come and work for his station, and he'll double my salary. And of course, there was no argument about that. But I got to go to graduate school up yeah. there, and I got to learn a lot about snow forecasting. Mm. So I got here in 19, 1982. Mm-hmm. It was called Snow Jam 82. Mm-hmm. In Minneapolis, they'd call that Tuesday. But it was, <laughs> it was gridlock, people walking home 15 miles from work. So I said, nobody's going to do this again on my watch, hopefully. Oh, wow. So uh, 1993 comes along, and I'm looking at this, and it's Armageddon. I'm seeing Armageddon here. I could not believe the amount of snow that I saw potentially occurring here. Did folks believe you? Well, my general manager didn't believe me. Yeah. He got, we had a little two o'clock meeting and he said, what do you think? I said, there's no question that some parts of Georgia are gonna get 30 inches of snow. He said, you're not gonna go out and you cannot go out on the air and say that. No, that has never happened here before. And I said to him, his name was Greg Stone. He was our general manager. I said, Greg, that's what I'm seeing. And I said, I know everybody else is calling for two to five inches, but... Wait a minute. Yeah, right? Two to five and 30. And then 30 is a big difference. Yes. <laughs> so, and he goes, all right, I trust you. Go for it. And sure enough, people on horseback up on the North Georgia mountains wow. and all down through the lower canyons there were 30 inches of snow. The only way they could get around. And let's keep in mind, folks, for our listeners, we're talking about the technology in 93 that hadn't even, what we have now is, oh. is just phenomenal. So you being able to predict this. It was, uh, yeah, it was basics, uh, you know, bread and butter forecasting. And it was not like the technology we had today with the computer models that come out every three or four hours. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was a stab in the dark, that's for sure. But I was pretty confident, based on the forecasting I did up in Minneapolis with the snow, I was pretty good at that. What I was seeing was, was a blizzard, and it was going to be huge. What did your general manager say to you after... You mean after the bottle of champagne? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and the rays? <laughs> and the, yeah, no, that didn't come, but certainly I got a nice bottle of champagne there, and uh, we, we dominated that storm. I sent a reporter. Uh, her name was Joyce Oscar. Mm-hmm. She, she hadn't spoken to me since, but I sent her to the Cahutta Wilderness Lodge. Oh, God. I said, this looks like a bullseye. She spent the week there, couldn't get out. Did you send her a bottle of champagne? <laughs> I should have, no. <laughs> Let's back up even further. Yeah. Going back to that very, do you remember that very first forecast that you gave? What market were you in? What um, were you wearing? I'm imagining it was a, a plaid jacket involved. Uh, yes, I think you're exactly <laughs> right. I, I think you're exactly right on that. Yes, it was light, light green and a little plaid in there. Ooh, Glenn. And I remember going on the air for the first time, and uh, the station wanted to give me something for people to remember so they started getting me these little carnations to wear every day a green one meant rain a blue one meant cool a red one meant hot so i would wear these carnations every day and that was uh, was my first week and uh and and all actually my first week was an absolutely incredible because two days in i had done two forecasts it was a wednesday and this was the station WPTV in Florida. Mm. It was located on the Intracoastal Waterway. And that's where the boats go in and out to the ocean. And it was pretty deep. It's about 20 feet deep. And it was January. 
And the water, even in Florida at that time, was pretty cold. And this little kid came running into the lobby of the station, screaming his lungs out. My dad fell in. My dad fell in. Because they were fishing on the seawall there. Oh. And he, he he's just terrified i could see you know his eyes are and he's screaming bloody murder my dad fell mm. in he's not coming up so i ran out the lobby and and i see nothing there's nothing that's maybe a couple of bubbles and i said oh heck and i dove in and the water's about 20 feet deep and the water temperature is about 65 degrees and that's pretty cold yeah. uh and it's night <laughs> you know it's dark so I dove down for the third time, and my fortunately, my foot hit his face. He was on the bottom. I grabbed him, and he was every bit of 300 pounds. And I don't know how I got him to the top, but by then everybody had come out, and they had called the ambulance, and the ambulance was there, and pulled him up over the seawall. I said, who knows CPR? And nobody did. I did. Mm-hmm. I started pounding on his chest, and a week later he came back to thank me. Oh wow, Glenn Burns, you have. St- that was my first week on the air. Wow, and now, <laughs> now you're here on closer look to tell it, right? You, you know the role of because we we were talking before we came on air, and I was telling you about St. Louis. We had a they called him a weatherman. That's what they called sure. him, Ollie Roman, and and the role of the meteorologist, the weather forecaster on TV. It's changed dramatically. Could you have even imagined that you know, our all the technology and the fact that meteorologists, journalists, meteorologists are now part of task force for states for weather preparedness. Yes, I was on the governor's task yeah. force here after 2014 to try well, to figure you, out what happened with that one. Yeah, well, <laughs> going to get to that in a moment. We're going to get to that. But uh, yeah, I mean, look at look at our team at WSB. I mean, meteorologist Brad Nitz and meteorologist Brian Monahan, a master's degree mm-hmm. from Penn State in meteorology, yeah. and and that's amazing. And, and Ebony Dion as well, another mm-hmm. master's degree in meteorology. So that has really, I mean, people don't like to admit it. <clears throat> Pardon me, but people watch the news for weather. I do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this has been an asset here to have professionals knowing what they're doing, can communicate with our National Weather Service. And so it's a concerted effort. Each time we get a bad storm, it is a group effort and smart kids today. Very smart. Have you ever ever had a forecast that you were on the fence about in terms of how severe it could be or perhaps you're maybe not putting too much severity on it and then the outcome was just totally opposite uh, 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 totally opposite i know uh, but i was very concerned and i was on the fence with this one it was in 2008 when the tornado hit during the men's sec basketball yes. tournament mm-hmm. uh they were going long track tornadoes and i was going hmm could it be i think maybe just brief spin-ups but the ones that do occur could be big mm-hmm. so i was on the fence should we really play this up and i told the team i said look you know, better to be safe than sorry, right? And so happens we have a tornado coming downtown Atlanta during the men's SEC finals. And thank goodness that game went into overtime. Exactly right. People would have been out on the street. Yeah, I remember. Can you imagine? I remember the next day going downtown, covering that, talking to people. Yes. Um, and there might have only been maybe, Glenn, one or two fatalities. It could have been much, much, much worse. Much worse. I know. And, and looking at the windows blown out of the CNN building yeah. down there. That was a big one. That was a big tornado. I can't even imagine, and even asking you and how you sum up 
the 40 it's really more than four four decades of of doing this is this something that you wanted to do when glenn was 10 12 you know not when i was 10 or 12 but when i was 15 years old i was a big surfer grew up in florida and uh, we were on the beach and each summer afternoon you get some pretty big storms that Mm -hmm. develop right and this one particular storm was pretty far away, so I felt confident, and I was still on the beach. I didn't get back and go with my friends in the car. Our moms were picking us up, and a lightning bolt hit this Australian pine about oh, 50, 75 feet away from me. And the shock wave from that lightning bolt blew me over, and my hair was on end, and uh, I had never felt anything like that. My skin was tingling, so I went and I was fortunate not to be killed by this mm. bolt from the blue it's called and i did uh, a lot of reading on lightning i i loved lightning thereafter mm. so that's what got me interested wow i have a listener says <laughs> i love this what about snowmageddon okay let's get to it listen there were a lot of finger pointing and we don't have to go over that but that moment for atlanta because not just here locally but internationally bbc called. oh i know asking me what are y'all doing <laughs> so what about that I there mean, was a big misunderstanding yeah so we had forecast snow but people thought we didn't as it turns out people were all over the highways some had to walk 15 miles back to their home they were caught off guard mm-hmm. they did not but we went back and we played them the tape from the day before. We had forecast snow. It wasn't, you know, a lot of snow, three to five inches. Mm-hmm. And then the governor comes out and slams us for mm-hmm. not calling for the snowstorm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we had to go and show the governor, here's our forecast. This is what we put on the air. We did forecast this snow. And then once you made that forecast, it's up to the other entities to plan how they want Thank to you. address it i'm just saying Thank you thank you very much and and the governor said oh, i'm very sorry mm-hmm. i'm putting together a task force i want you to be on that task force so this never happens again this lack of communication and it was a lack of communication not a really bad forecast wow and i and i, and I, I remember just the, the looking i mean fortunately for me i didn't live very far from the station i walked from i think uh, Lindbergh Station to where I was living, it wasn't that bad. But I know folks that walked from the highway to Smyrna. Yes, exactly. And I was like, wow. And you know, we have a different situation that develops in the South with southern snow because frequently it will turn into freezing rain before that snow. Mm-hmm. So you have this thin layer of ice on the roads with the snow on top of that. And that doesn't happen up in the north, of, you know, regularly. It happens sometimes, mm-hmm. but regularly. Down here, it always happens like that. And you can't drive on that. I don't care how good you are. And folks who say, well, I, I, can, I know how to drive on ice. I'm like, well, you know what? I'm from now, Missouri. I can tell you, we, no one gets it right. No one gets it right. The best ever. way for driving on ice, stay home. Thank you. I want to shift for a moment. Uh, some years ago, heart surgery. And you were very, yeah. you let us into that. In that part of 2016, your life. I yeah. went uh, for a physical, and the doctor said, I don't like the way your heart sounds. And he sent me to the specialist, and my heart valve was going. It was not working the way it should. Uh, so they decided they were going to do some heart surgery or replace that valve. Now, today they can do it arthroscopically and go up through your veins, mm-hmm. but it was a major surgery. Yeah. They cut you right down the middle there. And uh, it was scary, very scary, uh, to put things in perspective. 
Speaking of putting things in perspective, let's talk about Susan. Is she listening? Is Susan listening? I'm sure she is. (laughs) (laughs) You better say all the stuff that you haven't said. Exactly. Let's talk about Susan. My wonderful wife. Yeah, what she's meant along this journey for you. She has been incredible. She is the rock of our family. Because frequently, you know, you're away. You're going to be, hi, honey. You know, I know a tornado's coming. I know a blizzard's coming, but I got to go. You know, and she's got the kids and there was a tornado that went right through our backyard, actually, and I was forecasting, mm-hmm. tracking that on radar, and had called her. But uh, it's a tough life, uh, this broadcasting business. There's a no nine to five. It's when the weather happens, it happens, and it's day and night, holidays, and you gotta be there. And she took care of the kids, and she understood that, and she did such an incredible job uh, with our family. And now it's payback time because I'm taking her on a nice trip. Oh, that is great. Which yeah. I, leads me to this. Why now? Why Did you say maybe 40 years in, I'm done? Or was it just you woke up one morning and said, no, Susan, this is the day. Yeah, we had talked about it. And my kids said, you know, you're about five years past where we thought you'd retire. But I love doing what I do, you know. I love broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the station was kind enough to extend my contract. And it's still underway. And uh, I just said, it's just not as fun anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you get your app. you got the weather on your phone. There's so much. There, The audience just is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no question. But I will tell you, Glenn... An app cannot replace seeing and hearing a voice that is reassuring, seeing and hearing a voice that's saying, now look, folks, I really want you to understand what we're saying here. Yes, you're exactly right. And we can make a nice forecast that shows up on your app. But when you have severe weather and it's breaking and it's in your neighborhood, you want somebody there. You want a, you want a representative on the phone. <laughs> But you want somebody there tracking that storm and telling me where it's going to go and what's going to be the impact, and that's extremely important. I have a question here. Yeah. Can you ask Glenn Burns about human-caused global warming and his thoughts on it and how our climate system is in jeopardy? There's no question, and it's a sore subject, and I post that on my Facebook page from time to time, and it gets very angry. Yeah. It gets very angry. There's such a, a... difference between the believers and the non-believers. There's no question in my mind we have global warming. Why is that so hard, you think? You can, well, you can, you can let loose now. Well, <laughs> yeah, I can, actually. You know, whether, you know, and I don't care whether it's caused naturally and it's cyclical or we're, we're making it worse with what we do as, as far as production and factories and things like that. Mm-hmm. There is no question in my mind from what I've seen over 47 years, actually, forecasting weather, that the climate is changing. It, there's no doubt about it. I don't care if it's cyclical uh, or man-made. It's changing. So there's definite global warming. Much like the role of the meteorologist, and you talked about going into schools. You love that. I you do. You miss that? I am still doing it, actually. Yeah. And I'm going to be doing more up at TELUS, that, that museum up yeah. in TELUS, up in Bartow County. Just incredible. But I love talking to kids. Uh, they ask such incredible questions <laughs> uh, and catch you off guard all the time. You know, I love that. And, and, and it's, you know, I retired uh, more and more, came and, and gave me cards and letters. And, I, I, you know, you came to my school. I remember mm-hmm. that. And, how do you sum up all of this, Glenn, in one word, if you can? Uh, it's been a ride. 
It's been an incredible ride, and I want to thank you for having me on today. Uh, I love doing this kind of thing. This is great. Where I'm free to do what I want to do. Well, uh, and, and listen, on behalf of everyone here at WABE, this is how I know you're a big deal. So we have a, a nice swag bag for oh, you. Oh, jeez, thank you. I didn't even know we had this, what do you call it, Daniel, this double zipper tote? Wow. I don't have one. That's awesome. And it's full of a lot of, it's just our way of saying thank you, but on behalf of the entire Atlanta area, thank you so much for everything that you've done. Best of luck to you and Susan, and you owe her a lot. Thank you, I do. I just wanted to make a difference, and I hope I did. You did. Thank Thank you, you, Rose. Happy birthday. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Daniel Rezell, Pat St. Clair, and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.